Good morning, church. Go ahead and open up your Bible to the fourth gospel in the New Testament, John 20, verse one. John 20, verse one is where we'll be today. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles in the pew right in front of you and also on the screen. So let's read together. Verse one. Here's what God's word says to us this morning. It says, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, it's John. We'll talk more about him later. And said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. And so Peter went with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb and both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb and he saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. And then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to their homes. Since Friday evening, Jesus has been laying in a tomb uh, owned by a wealthy man named Joseph of Arimathea. And he has been there since Friday, and all of the events leading up to that seem to have happened all at once. It had rapidly unfolded. The night before, there was a final last meal. That, If you've been part of Bethesda, we've talked a lot about what happened in that conversation, where Jesus gave final words of encouragement to his disciples. He went out to a garden where he was betrayed by one of his disciples, and then in the middle of the night, he ended up being arrested and was on the receiving end of two mock trials, one from the Jews, uh, another one from the Romans led by Pilate. And as a result of the back and forth between Pilate and the Jews, Jesus ends up being crucified. And it has happened quite quickly, the whole thing leading up to it. So by the time that morning is over, Friday morning, he's hanging on a cross and then sometime in the afternoon, our Savior has died and that evening is placed in the tomb. That's what led up to all of this. There was a woman named Mary of Magdala and she comes to the tomb early in the morning and as she arrives, she notices that the, the stone that should be in front of the tomb has been taken away. Now I want you to think for just a moment the shock that would have been in her mind. She had just the night, a couple days before, three days to be precise, Friday night, she had seen Jesus be brutally murdered, taken off of that cross, see where he had been placed. And so you can imagine the kind of horrific images that are in her mind as she comes to the tomb that morning and she sees the stone rolled away. Imagine for a moment, you and I, maybe we're going to see a loved one that had passed away and we've brought flowers and instead of where the casket should be six feet under, you see a big hole. What would you do? 
You, you, you might do the logical thing, which is what she did, and, and she ran off to tell somebody. So she goes off and, and she says to Peter and John, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. And that's the giveaway that she has not fully understood what has happened. She thinks grave robbers, enemies of Jesus have come and taken his body. That's the, that's the logical conclusion to come to, by the way. That wouldn't make sense if you and I were on the receiving end of that. And so that's how this story gets underway. The gospel then tells us that we just read that Peter and John, they end up taking off and they start at a certain point, John outruns Peter. And some people have made a lot of that information and have said, well, maybe there's significance behind it that John was more preeminent than Peter or that he had a greater love for his savior. So he, uh, out of the burden that was in his heart, he ran to the cross into the tomb sooner. Um, when in reality, I think it's probably right if we go with how tradition has looked at this and said, most likely John was just a younger man than Peter. Um, but John gets there first. He stoops down and he looks into the tomb, which again is a giveaway that this likely was a cave tomb because he had to stoop down to look in. And he sees linen cloths lying there. He doesn't go in. Instead, Peter, he finally shows up, maybe puts his hands on his knees, gets a breather real quick, and he does what Peter does. He barges in and goes first. And so he goes into the tomb, and he sees even more than what John had seen. He not only sees the linen cloths, he also sees that there's a face cloth that had been on Jesus' face when he had died, and it's been wrapped up neatly over to the side. And as I say that, if you're an attentive reader of the Gospel of John, you should make a connection in your mind to another story that took place nine chapters prior. And what is that? It's the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Jesus had showed up and had consoled Martha and then Mary had gone to the tomb and he had said, Lazarus, come out. And John eleven forty four tells us that the man who had died came out his hands and feet were bound with linen strips and his face was wrapped with a, with a cloth. And so you can see the similarities between that story and this one. Also very clear differences as well. The evidence does not side with some, and maybe you've heard this, who have said that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross, he swooned the cross. In other words, he, he, he hung up there, uh, but he, he survived it. And, and somehow made his way out of the tomb before Mary could show up that morning. And, and I just want to say, if you just spend 30 seconds thinking about it, I, I heard one uh, pastor, uh, speaker, Vody Bauckham, he said, um, a lot of us would do ourselves a big favor if we just had 30-second theology. Like, just think about it for a moment, and you'll realize how silly it is. Can you imagine that Jesus, after surviving a horrific ordeal like crucifixion and getting stabbed in his side, survives all of that and then goes, I have the strength to be able to move a big stone out of the way. But you know what? Before I do that, I'm going to wrap up the linen cloth and put that neatly over to the side. It doesn't seem to make sense. Or the other hypothesis that grave robbers, as Mary had thought, had come to the tomb. Like, just think that through. Do you think they would unwrap him, unwrap a body, and take them out butt naked? Absolutely not. 
Instead, like you just go, okay, before we do this, let's wrap up everything and then we'll, we'll make our way on out. No, he wouldn't do something like that. But instead, you would take the whole body out. It just doesn't make sense. Something else has clearly happened. The narrative gives us something profound, and you can see it in verse 8. Look with me. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And so John enters the tomb after Peter, but he, it clicks in his mind before Peter, and he understands what he, based on what he sees. The Old Testament, his Bible, he understood the significance that the whole Bible had been pointing to this reality and who Jesus was. But instead, he understood by what he saw in front of him. While the other disciples would believe by seeing Jesus resurrected, John's going to get it because he sees the implication of the empty tomb. And what is the implication, friends? He is not here, he has risen, right? He has risen. And so the narrative wraps up with a statement, uh, a brief statement, it says that then the disciples went back to their homes. And you can just imagine again, what kind of conversation that might have been like for Peter and for John. What would they have said to each other? If you're with us next week, we'll then look at how Jesus is going to appear to the disciples. And he's gonna meet each one of them in their grief, Mary in her grief, the disciples in their fear, and Thomas in his doubts. There is resurrection power for anyone who's dealing with these things. But I wanna do something before we do anything else. And I wanna ask all of us a question. I think it's the most important question we're gonna ask this morning, and it's this. Did what I just tell you, that story that I read and the story I just described, did it really happen? Did it actually happen? And if so, what's the significance of it? Does it, who cares? Does it really matter? Did he actually rise from the dead? And if so, who cares? Should we categorize Jesus and this story right here with the Easter bunny and nicely decorated eggs? Or do you categorize it over here with historical facts like Caesar crossing the Rubicon or Abraham Lincoln giving the Gettysburg Address, something like that? What category do you put it in? And what are the implications of it? You can see it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that you know how Christians are going to answer this question. Uh, the first one, yes, we do believe he rose historically from the dead. And then the second one, yes, we do believe it matters. So let's do a little bit of investigating, a little bit here, and answer that question, these questions before us. I've already said to you that it's very unlikely, based on the evidence in front of us, that grave robbers came to the tomb or that Jesus survived and was able to make his way out of it. It just doesn't line up with what has been given to us in the narrative. Based on the linen cloths, what, what, they, what we see in front of us, neatly folded, all of that. A second thing is considering what happened to two characters in the story, Peter and John. Christians have pointed this out for a long time. Do you know what happens to Peter 30 years later, give or take, after this event that takes place? He ends up getting captured in Rome and is crucified upside down for believing that Jesus rose from the dead. John, for also believing the same thing, he ends up getting exiled to the island of Patmos underneath the emperor uh, Domitian at the time. 
The rest of the disciples, minus Judas, who takes his own life, the rest of them end up being martyred according to church tradition because they boldly proclaim, despite the risk to their own life, that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified and rose again on the third day and that he is Lord. And so what Christians have pointed out is to say that why would you let yourself be martyred for something that you know is not true or at the very least you might have a suspicion that it might not be true? Like when push comes to shove, it takes a lot for someone to allow themselves to lose their life. You want to make sure that you're dying for something that's worth it. And so something had happened to these men where they were cowards one moment, and yet the next moment, they're willing to die for their faith. Third, third thing. There's been some people who have looked at this account and have compared it to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they've gone, there's differences. Even further, they've said there's contradictions and we can't trust the passages in front of us. Let me give you a few of these things that people have pointed to. Some have pointed out that Mary was the only woman that is mentioned in this story, but if you read the other accounts, you'll get multiple women that show up to the tomb. Or in some accounts, there's two angels that are there when the women arrive. In another account, you only have one. Um, you notice that when we read this passage, there was no mention of the guards at the tomb, uh, there's also no mention of an earthquake that happens. If you see Matthew 28, you'll see that is described in that passage. And you can see that there's a lot of differences. But I would ask you to consider this. Differences in eyewitness testimony does not necessarily mean contradiction in the story. If you and I were to see a car accident happen, and we're standing on two different sides of the street, you might end up saying, man, that person was on the phone, they didn't see it, it was coming a mile away, and they ended up getting this horrible event happened. I might say, I, I, was, I was looking over here, and then all of a sudden, wham, it happened right in front of me. We would be describing the same event, but we wouldn't be saying something that was untrue. We'd be seeing it from our own vantage points. And so that's what you have in front of us, different details that are described of the same event. In fact, if all of the details and the sequence of the story, everything was, was so perfect from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, I might, I think we would be justified in saying there's some sort of collusion that's going on here that everybody got together to get their story straight and then told it four different times. In fact, I think it lends itself because there's differences to the veracity of the testimony. Consider the differences even further though, friend. Let's admit, for just the sake of argument, that there's contradictions in this story. I don't think that there are, but let's, ad let's just admit it for the sake of argument. You know what these stories all have in common though, and I'm almost embarrassed to say it, that all of these stories have in common that's really kind of important? The dead guy who's supposed to be in the tomb is still not there. You see that in every single one of these accounts. People show up to the tomb, he's not there, and then they go back and tell others. And so even if you say, man, there's, there's contradictions here or whatever, you still have to do with the glaring big facts in front of you. Give you another one. Something struck me this week as I was reading this passage, and it struck me in this way. This story is really quite straightforward. It doesn't read like an epic. It gives details that 
almost seem to be inconsequential. The race to the tomb, why do you include something like that? The vivid description of where the linens were laid, who stepped inside when, Peter before John. Why do you include details like this? That does not seem to be that important unless you're just telling it like it is. A straightforward telling of an eyewitness account. I think that's how it lends itself to us. I'll give you one more. The report of Mary, and this is probably my most favorite, it's one of the most popular, is that Mary is the one who first sees the empty tomb. See, the truth was, and, and, and women, this is just the way it was in the first century, that a woman's testimony was not considered to be valid in a court of law. And so if I was to write a story and I wanted to convince other people that this had actually happened, I would have a man going to the tomb first and not a woman. And so why in the world would you include this embarrassing detail in your account? Have you ever thought of that before? Why do you include this? And the only logical conclusion is that you include it only if this is actually the way it happened. You see, the first to the empty tomb and the first to see the resurrected Lord were not men, but it was women. And so the more that you look at it, and I'm just giving you a few things in our time this morning, and there's so many more things I could point to. The more that you look at the evidence and you look at this whole of the story, what happened with this empty tomb, and you try to fit other things in it, you come to the realization that the only reasonable thing, if you're looking at this from a historical perspective, is that this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, a Jew in the first century, came back to life. That's the only conclusion you can come up to. The next question, though, does this actually matter? Does it matter? I would say also yes, and I would ask you to consider the following. Richard Swinburne, a philosopher, well-known Oxford philosopher, has said, in arguing for the veracity of the empty tomb account, he has said that if the resurrection is true, I love this, it's like the signature of the father's approval on the life of his son, the life and teachings of his son. If Jesus came back from the dead, I'd ask you to rewind the tape, go back to the beginning of the story when he's in a manger, and reread a gospel sometime with a resurrection lens. And what you're going to see is that you're going to have to confront the outlandish statements of Jesus and go, he's either nuts, he's either a lunatic, this is a popular apologetic, Apologetics refers to the defense of the Christian faith, liar, lunatic, or Lord. You've got to confront these big statements this guy is making. And so if he's actually come back from the dead, you know that you can trust what he is saying because he has proved what he is saying by coming back to life. But I'd ask you then to really consider the personal implications of all of this. Church, I've shared with you this at some point, back in the fall. I told you a story, and I want to share it once more here, that when I was in seminary, I was a jaded, doubting seminary student. It's a great frame of mind to be in when you're preparing for ministry. And I really doubted this book, and I was wrestling with it. And there's this guy named J. Warner Wallace who was in a cold case detective, the TV show called Cold Case Detective, came to Southwestern Seminary, and he was telling us and giving some of the historical details around the resurrection account, kind of like what I just gave you. And I remember coming to the conclusion, I, the logical thing, the reasonable thing is to agree with what Wallace was saying. 
But when it came time to the Q and, for the q and I, I, th- I think I was the first one to stand up and I said, what difference does it make? Okay, that's where the evidence points, but what difference does it make? But then like John who peered into the empty tomb and then went into the tomb and it began to click, it began to click for me as well, that if this person in history rose from the dead, he's alive then and he's alive now and he has been seeing me doubt him this entire time and yet he has never left me, he's never forsaken me and he is still present. Friend, I'd ask you, Holy Spirit, do what I cannot do. Let it hit our hearts. I'd ask you to consider that if Jesus is really alive, he sees everything that's happening in this room right now. He is present with all of us. Nothing is hidden before his sight. If you really think about it, it'll make you shudder just a little bit. It, it, it should. That the Lord of all of creation is actually here with us now. And we're accountable to him, friends. Like, I would say this, if you're a middle schooler or a high schooler in the room and you see your friends going, going just going this way, as they're on TikTok or whatever, and you see how, how, how what they're seeing through social media or the things right in front of them, how it's impacting, how they view anthropology, what it means to be human, what it means to be man and woman, you've seen them go that direction. I'd ask you to consider for just a moment, who cares what the world thinks when this guy came back to life? You care about what the guy who was raised from the dead thinks because he's God. You're not accountable to your friends or anybody else. You're accountable to the risen Lord. And I remember when that hit me, I went, I got a decision to make. Even if this thing is uncomfortable for me at certain points, he came back to life and I got to face that. And so I would ask you to consider how weighty this gets real quick, right? But then also consider that what he says about salvation, man, you can take that to the bank. When he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, you can trust it because your Savior is not in in a tomb any longer. Because he has risen, we have a personal God who has paved the way for our salvation, okay? In the rest of our time together, I just wanna do two things. I wanna consider how most of us in this room, we, we have heard this account of the resurrection before, but I, I wonder if we've really peered into the tomb and let the implications of that just hit us and profoundly affect us in our present life. So I, I would ask you to consider first the power of the resurrection for our life right now, and then in just a moment, we'll consider the hope of the resurrection for what's to come. Let's first look at the first thing, the power of the resurrection for the present. The other day I was reading a little primer on church history, as one does, and was brought to the words of Gregory the Great, a a significant church thinker and uh, leader in the sixth century. And he was talking to ministers about how you proclaim God's word, what you need to do. And then he was also speaking to the listeners, what you need to bring to the table when this moment happens. And here's what he said. He says, it's, a justly, it's justly promise that he will teach you, Christ will teach you all things, because unless the spirit is present in the heart of a listener, the teacher's utterance is useless. What I do is worthless. 
No one should attribute to this teacher what he understands from him, because unless there is an inner teacher, the one outside is exerting himself in vain. And so the resurrection is that inaugural moment where where Christ begins to place the spirit into our lives. I cannot wait until next week where we will talk about how he does that for the disciples. But I'd ask you to consider this. Again, I think I've been here. Brother, I think I've been here long enough where I can't remember if I've told stories in here before. And so here's another one. So uh, I was a teenager and I was listening to David Lindo, pastor of First Baptist Church, Universal City, where I was growing up. And I would listen to him every single Sunday. And the truth was, he was not that great of a preacher. Um, it, it was just kind of vanilla. You know, he was, what he was saying was right, but it didn't really hit you right in here. Right in here. And so uh, I purposely would sit in the balcony. We had a big balcony and went to the side, and I'd sit up on the side there just so I could watch everyone during the service. And he would be preaching, and he would eventually get to the part where he'd start talking about the cross, cross and what Christ has done, the resurrection. And I remember thinking, okay, well, who's the heathen down there that needs to hear uh, what David is talking about? And it never clicked that, for me, I was the one who needed to hear it. Something really interesting happened that when the Lord finally got a hold of me, Pastor David's sermon started getting a lot better real fast, right? It was incredible how that worked. His sermons just got amazing all of a sudden. And it was really interesting that when he started talking about Jesus and the cross and resurrection, I did not think, who are those people down there who need to hear that? I remember thinking, every hour I need to hear this. And I, I, I don't graduate from the gospel. I need to hear this every single moment, every single hour. And I just want to ask you, friend, if you're the kind of person that when the, the preacher or the song or the whatever begins to, to mention Christ, his cross, and his, the power of his resurrection, do you find yourself tuning out? And you've let the power of the resurrection go in one year and out the other. You might be someone who left, let the power of the resurrection, you might have put a stiff arm up to it. You might be this way if you're like this. You thought this was just going to be an evangelistic sermon. No, this is for, first and foremost for the disciples. Here we go. You might be someone who has rejected resurrection power. If you live to criticize the dress rehearsal that is the gathering of the church instead of longing with joy for the main event that is yet to come in Christ. If you're the kind of person that says, well, if they only did it my way, or if if we only did it the way I think we should do it, and and you can only see what is wrong with God's church, instead of just going, I'm so thankful to be able to gather with fellow like-minded believers and worship our Lord. I'm so glad to be here this morning. Man, if you're missing out on the joy this morning, that might be evidence that you don't have resurrection power in you. Man, I want you to enjoy the fruit of the Spirit. Jesus doesn't say, taste and see that the Lord is good for no reason. I want you to move from cold, dead, dry religion to seeing the joy of why we sing with our heart when we're here. You may be someone who has rejected resurrection power if you look at what Christ has done, but then you look at your own circumstances and go, you don't know what I've done, Aaron. You don't know what I did just last night. You don't know what I've done over the last week. You don't know what's plagued me for years. You don't know what it's like when I tell my wife and I have to look look her in the eyes or I look my husband in the eyes or whoever, and I go, "I, I did it again. You don't know what it's like to have to deal with that. You're the kind of person who thinks that the shackles that have made you a slave to sin are more, are more powerful than the power that raised Jesus from the dead. 
And Jesus is here this morning through his word by the Spirit to break those shackles off today. You might be someone who has rejected resurrection power. If you say, Jesus, you can have this much of my life, like just enough so I can get into heaven, but the things that really matter, I gotta hold on to those, whether it's a job or whether it's my marriage, family, or whatever. You say, I, you can have enough of it, Jesus, just so I can get out of hell free. But I need to hold on to the really important things. Friend, the witness of Scripture says that Jesus will either have all of you or nothing. And he also says that he is a jealous God. There is no middle ground. And so you get the idea. Without resurrection power that comes through the spirit of Jesus, our hearts are prone to distort the good, live in quiet desperation, and to fall prey to self-idolatry. This is why we need the spirit to remind us day by day of the gospel's message, that we live in light of what Christ has done for us. And I think of the words of one pastor who uh, I've appreciated his teachings have said, you, you don't graduate from the gospel. He said, you should think about the gospel as, yes, the ABCs to salvation. You must believe that. But it's also the A to Z of the entire Christian life. What Christ has done for you both justifies you but continues to sanctify you so that as you fall down, you get back up. And I just want to say, praise God that the Spirit has come into my life so that I wouldn't graduate from what is most important, that I wouldn't continue to have to go back to it. Praise God that he's given me eyes to see what I didn't even care to look for before I met him. But let's even get more precise here. Why do I need to hear about the cross and the resurrection of what Christ has done for me? Answer, the last time I checked, I'm still a sinner. And I need the power of the gospel every day because of my sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friends, you need those daily reminders of what, who you are and then living in light of who he is. A few years ago, Justine and I were in Houston, and it's probably about eight years ago, and we were at a passion conference. Have you ever heard of Louis Giglio? All those guys. And uh, we heard a great sermon preached, about 15,000 college students and, and people in their 20s. It was an incredible moment, singing together. And then afterwards, we went out of the stadium, and maybe you've had this happen to you before, where uh, there were people with signs telling us that we were going to hell and they had megaphones, and, they were, and that's the message that they were preaching. And so, anyways, uh, we had something to, to be. So I did the reasonable thing. I looked at my and we decided that we were going to go back to our hotel that night. No, that's not why I'm telling you this story. I wouldn't tell you this story if that's what happened. No, I went and talked to one of them. So I'm talking with one of them, and as I'm talking to him, I go, tell me what you believe, man. And you realize that what he was communicating was some form of Christian perfectionism. That once you become a Christian, you no longer sin. And, and you could tell there's a lot of legalism in that. It was all about the rules. Don't do this, do this. And I should just say, Christianity does, does have rules that we live according to the rule of Christ. It is that, but it's far more than that. And you could realize the joy that this man had. And so 
I'm not telling you this story because I end up being the hero of the story. This is what happened. I asked him, I say, okay, so are your kids Christians? And he said, yes. And I said, so if they're Christians, what would you do if they got into high school and did dumb things that high schoolers do? And he goes, well, then I would have to shun them. I remember that's the exact word that he used. You'd have to shun them and cut them off. And I remember thinking, how graceless is that fairy tale that you're living, friend, to not extend grace to, towards those when they mess up? He had forgotten that the concept of sanctification is that you will mess up, but Christ keeps you going. He gets you back up. Luther, in his 95 Theses, which he wrote some 500 years ago, the document that sparked the Protestant Reformation, the first thing that he says, the first thesis is, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, Matthew 4, 17, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. I love that. He's describing the Christian life as one of repentance. You ever thought of Christianity like that? A continuous confessing of brokenness and turning away to our Lord day by day. And the gospel message tells us that no matter how difficult it is, we can get back up. And so this morning, friend, I would, I would ask you to think that no matter where you find yourself in your shortcomings, your sin, and your inconsistency, you can know today that if Christ has left the grave behind you, so can you. Every single day his mercies are new because of that empty grave. Just because your life may be a wreck, just because of what you might have done, your actions don't put my Savior back inside of that tomb. He's out, he's staying out, and nothing you have done is gonna change that fact. And so knowing that Christ is resurrected ought to give you the ability to chill out, give yourself a break, and go, my status is justified. There's nothing that I can do. There's nothing that you can say. Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 3, he'll talk about this. He'll say, I don't really care what you have to say about me. I don't really judge myself. It is the Lord who judges me. And he has judged all of us who are in Christ. And we know that that judgment of justified in right standing remains true because the grave remains empty. The tomb is empty and it will stay that way. And so I'd ask you to consider, like when you, when you get a hold of this grace, you realize this is what genuine historic Christianity is all about. You've stumbled upon the true thing and you realize, now I found it, the cold, dead, dry religion that I've seen so often perhaps in my upbringing. You can go, I understand why other Christians have been so genuine and wanted to hold on to this because they've had their hearts warmed and stirred and you realize that you cannot go back. The thing about genuine historic Christianity is that it does what others will not do. It forces you to look yourself in the mirror and see yourself really who for who you are. It does not call your sin a mere mistake, but it calls it a rebellion and it tells you that you're wretched and without hope. But the gospel tells you that Christ has overcome your sin. And again, to paraphrase one of my favorite theologians, be encouraged, dear friend. You're more wicked than you could possibly imagine. But you are more loved by God than you dare hope. Our sin is great, but his love is greater still. And so if I could sum up, the gospel is yes for unbelievers, but it sustains believers. And may us live in light of this resurrection power because we don't graduate from it. 
we need to be reminded as he sanctifies us. Last thing, the hope of the resurrection. It gives us hope for the future. The empty tomb inaugurates a new creation. Man fell in a garden. Jesus was betrayed in a garden. Jesus rises from the dead in a tomb that's in a garden. But we're not going back to the Garden of Eden. We're moving forward. And the empty tomb tells us that Jesus has inaugurated the beginning of this new creation. It's started, but it's not yet complete. You can look at the brokenness in our world and go, he started something, but he will, he will bring it to completion, the full consummation, when he vanquishes the devil when he returns. And so let me tell you about this hope that we have. Paul describes this tension in this hope. He says, I consider that our present sufferings that are not worth comparing with glory. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And so creation is groaning in this present moment, and yet the empty tomb tells us that this moment of suffering that you may be enduring today is just that, a moment. And so consider the implications for hope, friend. This means that for every widow and widower in this room this morning, who has, I talked to people even this last week who have recently or will in, in just a few moments, a few days, celebrate the anniversary of the death of a loved one. And you may feel like you are lingering in this life and that anniversary is a cause for despair. You can still know that you have the hope of reunion with all of your brothers and sisters in Christ who have come before you. This is the 80th year life of our church and there have been many saints that have gone before us. And yet we know that God's word says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And so because he is the first fruit of what will happen for all those in Christ, we know that for the Christian, death is not a period, it is a comma in our life. And so if you're in grief this morning, I would ask you to consider again the words that Jesus says to Martha before he raises Lazarus from the dead. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Do you believe this, friend? It means that the injustice that we see that is very wrong with our world and that is in our country today, that we see maybe in our own lives, in our community or society, friend, it will be dealt with. It will be dealt with by the one who's victorious because he is the one whose kingdom is not from this world. And in the end of all things, we know if he's going to handle it, it gives us the ability to endure in the present. And then last, it means that for those of us who we should be transformed by the renewing of our mind and yet still deal with crippling depression or thoughts out of nowhere that life is not worth living, you can know that there is a better tomorrow, that there will be a day when all tears will be wiped away, when Jesus will look at you, the one who says, behold, I am making all things new, and all of this that is in your life now will fade because you will see him. And he calls you to trust in him this morning. I could go into hundreds of life circumstances. But the hope of the Christian is that these present sufferings that each of us face this morning will fade away. The sun will rise. The great reunion will happen. Believing will turn into seeing. Oh, come, Lord Jesus. And so let us 
Go again with John, the beloved disciple. Let us look into that tomb and then stand inside of it and consider the significance of it like we never have before. And let us, let us say with the saints that have gone before us that we live in resurrection power for this world as we live in resurrection power for the hope of the life to come. And so Christ is risen, hallelujah. Christ, our victorious head, sing his praises, hallelujah. Christ is risen from the dead. The light came into the world, and the darkness could not, and it will not overcome it. Let's pray. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, Org, or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.